Jewish communities across the globe are gathering to celebrate Hanukkah, a holiday that was born out of the freedom from oppression. But to say that this Hanukkah might be different from others would be putting it mildly, because anti-Semitism across the country and worldwide has risen astronomically again. But it's people like my guest today, Rabbi Noah Farkas, that are doing everything they can to help push a message of love, unity, and understanding. And not just for his community, but for others as well. You're listening to We Need to Talk. We need to talk. Rabbi Noah Farkas, thank you so much for being on We Need to Talk today. It's such a great pleasure to be with you. We met uh, just a few weeks ago when we both made our CNN debut. <laughs> so I'm glad that we get to to sit down and have a chat. So I, I really appreciate your time. And I know we're going to be having a serious conversation. So I appreciate everything that you're going to bring to this. I'm really happy to be here um, and to, to chat with you. So I, obviously, you know, the last couple months, we've been talking a lot about um, the rise in anti-Semitism. But I know for you, being a rabbi and being the president and CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles and being heavily involved in the Jewish community, this isn't new for you. I guess it's new for a lot of people, though, because people didn't know that it was such a prevalent part of society, that anti-Semitism was as serious as it is. And I know it's terrifying for the Jewish community. But for you, as a spiritual leader, how are you providing guidance and comfort during this time for your community? And the second part of that is, how are you taking care of yourself? Because I know, as someone who chooses to advocate for a lot of groups, I also have to take a step back and make sure my mental health and my well-being is being taken care of when I'm trying to always provide for other people. So that's a, just a two-part question. How are you providing you know, comfort and guidance for your community, but how are you taking care of yourself during this time? Thank you for that very um, in-depth question. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm going to give you 30 seconds on the history of anti-Semitism in the United States and its effect on the Jewish people. Absolutely. And then happy to discuss uh, how we're helping people today and how I'm helping myself. So anti-Semitism has been part of the, um, in many ways, some of the political headwaters that formed this country. The one of the only petitioners to the Constitutional Congress from the public was from a Jewish man who asked to be assured uh, that this new land, this new country, would be a place where Jews would be safe and comfortable. And uh, there is a letter from President George Washington to one of the oldest synagogues in the country, the El Toro Synagogue in Providence, Rhode Island, um, assuring that Jews would be able to practice their religion freely here in this country. And while all that sounds great and amazing that we've engaged with the form uh, the formulating powers of the government and that the we have been gotten a reassurance from those powers over the course of the history of the United States, um, it hasn't always played out in the real cultural fabric. Uh, for generations, Jews were barred from university. There mm -hmm. were quotas. There were uh, we were barred from practicing medicine in the public and private hospitals of this country, which is why we had to form our own. We were not allowed into social clubs, um, country clubs, eating clubs, et cetera, especially on the East Coast. 
and uh, we weren't allowed to participate in uh, more community-based organizations. So, so um, for generations, Jews had to create our own social safety net. We had to create our own hospitals. We had to create our own social welfare organizations, our own social clubs, because we were excluded from the larger uh, community. In addition, as I think might resonate with, with some of your listeners, Jews for generations have had to change our names to fit in to the larger community. We had to practice code switching between what those names meant in public versus what it meant in our families. In many ways, we've had to change our hair and our hairstyles to fit in with the larger uh, uh, Gentile community. And in some cases, which became a joke and a stereotype, but it covers over something much darker and much sadder, is that for Jewish women, especially the notion of changing our bodies and specifically mm. getting plastic surgery to do so is a uh, is really a, a signifier of oppression more than it is of humor, in my opinion. Yeah. So, yeah. so you think about that and you think about the long history of anti-Semitism and we're not in that systemic place anymore. It's not systemically anti-Semitic in the same way it was. And uh, and Jews have always fought against those systemic structures, including now Jews are in the forefront of the fight against certain elements of systemic racism. But um, what we're seeing now in this moment, and I know that you've covered this extensively, is that we are in a new phase of peak anti-Semitic activity in this country. Yeah. And uh, hurtful and hateful speech leads to hateful actions, which often lead to hateful crimes. Uh, hate crimes in Los Angeles County are at the highest they've been in two decades, and 60% of those crimes, Jews are the victims. So uh, that's the moment that we are in. And how my organization, the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles, of which I am the CEO, our organization has been the nexus and backbone of the Jewish community. We have funded the various social service agencies over our long history, over our century-long history. We've helped create the Jewish hospitals, which are now public hospitals gifted back to the community. We have supported the community centers and schools. So uh, in many ways, uh, we're the central address of the Jewish community. And in this moment, we are becoming the center of the fight against anti-Semitism. And the way that we do that is that we provide security monitoring for nearly 600 Jewish organizations in the city. Um, it is an unfortunate and, in my opinion, unfair thing that Jews have to go and worship behind closed doors, high walls, and armed security guards. Uh, readily recognizing that those very security guards trigger other minorities and their experiences with um, with militarized police presences, but it is an unnecessary thing for the Jews uh, for the Jewish Jews of this community to uh, to have guards on campus in order for them just to send their kid to Sunday school. And uh, we provide much of the monitoring and training of that system, as well as advocating for funding for that system. I love that. In addition, we uh, do a lot of leadership development and training in the Jewish community about awareness and education. We advocate on behalf of the Jewish community for policies and programs to help protect the Jewish community and to make statements that uh, try to shine a light on the anti-Semitism that everyone is experiencing. 
And most importantly, in my opinion, what makes our organization unique, not just as a defense type organization, but as a real Jewish life organization, is that we provide education funding for the Jewish community to experience Jewish life. And that we're not just fighting against anti-Semitism, but we're fighting for a joyful Jewish life. Mm -hmm. So that is what we're doing for the community. And we do that 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the um, over 700,000 individuals living in Jewish households here in the Southland, making us the second largest Jewish community in the United States and the fourth largest in the world. Wow. Wow. And for myself, I take deep joy in experiencing the joy of my family and my traditions and my holidays, as well as taking deep, deep joy when I see other Jews fully expressing their Jewish life without reservation or fear. And so my cup gets filled in those moments, too. That's good. That's great. It's, it's always good to find joy, even in hard times. So I love that you're able to do that. You know, as you were speaking and you were talking about a lot of the things that your organization does, but also just the history of the Jewish community in this country. And I know we talked a little bit about this um, when we first met, but it's hard to deny the parallels between the Jewish community and the black community, right? And for me, it is very difficult to see currently that allyship and that relationship that was so strong for a, a while in, in the back, especially during the civil rights movement, you know, era, we, we knew that the Jewish community and the black community walked side by side together. It, it's very disheartening to see it kind of being broken down by prominent figures and celebrities, right? But what have you understood in terms of the black community and the Jewish community and their allyship, just the history of that? And is there anything that you and your organization are doing currently to try to bridge that gap that has been broken? Again, wonderful questions. I feel like I could talk to you for hours. Um, <laughs> the Jewish community has been at the forefront of civil rights and social change for decades, almost um, in parallel with uh, with the African American and Black community, um, mm -hmm. it, I just want to be clear that that um, where I think we've succeeded is when we understood with empathy each other's mutual history of oppression yes. and of dispossession, and we leaned into that as a way of uh, building, I guess, what I would call intersectionality 1.0. The idea that yeah. the shared response requires a shared action. Um, some of that changed. I mean, some of the history of that changed specifically around uh, one area I'll just highlight for the sake of this conversation. It is entirely proper for those who are victims of injustice to be centered at the story of power shifting when it comes to organizing for a more just society. And it, it was natural in certain ways for the Black community post Martin Luther King to try to excise any, um, any ally that was seen as taking up space from the Black experience. And I understand that. And I think in many ways, BLM embodies that, has embodied that. Um, but at the same time, uh, because in the black community, and I'm, I'm going to speak in a very broad term for just a moment, that um, there is a cultural assumption that Jews are white or white passing, 
um, which uh, the Jewish community of Los Angeles is only marginally more, let's call it Caucasian, when we're actually the most diverse uh, Jewish community outside of the state of Israel, um, where the majority of the community, only slightly majority community is what we would call Ashkenazi, which comes from uh, cultural roots in Eastern Europe, as opposed to other forms of Jewish expression, including Iranian American, uh, Iraqi Moroccan, Latino, um, and in many cases African American yeah. Jews. So, uh, so there is it's just complicated um, because some of that is internalized, um, viewed through the lens of anti-black racism. Anyone who doesn't uh, isn't black presenting it gets discounted a bit. And yeah. I'm not against that. I, I, I want to be clear, but sometimes that gets over, uh, has an overlay, which has internalizes some anti-Semitic tropes into that. And, um, and so that was part, not the only, that was part of the reason why uh, the communities begin to diverge a bit. And then the last, the other piece I'll say, which is entirely upon all of us, not just, not just the black community, but um we got busy with our own internal dynamics hmm. and uh, the Jewish community got busy with its own internal dynamics. We were um, in the last 30 years dealing with um, in many ways, certain continuity issues, issues around uh, dealing with modernity and assimilation issues around um, the rise of state, the state of Israel and the protection of the state of Israel and um, helping gather Jews from around the world who were historically oppressed and bringing them to Israel, including just in the last 20 years, a massive number of Russian Jews that um, are continuing to be oppressed in modern Russia and are trying to get out, and Jews in Ethiopia, uh, to the t tens of thousands of Jews, Ethiopian, Black Jews in Ethiopia, who are systemically um, uh, beaten, murdered, etc., by the regime mm -hmm. in Ethiopia, and trying to get them out through secondary and tertiary countries to get them to Israel and other places for safety. So we were, as a world Jewish community, very internally focused, which meant we didn't spend the time, energy, and intention of building Black Jewish coalitions. And unless these things get energy, they fall apart. Yeah. And so that brings that brings us to the moment that we're in now. It is clear and necessary in our city, especially given the various scandals at the city council and in some ways the uh, former mayor's office, that we need to rebuild the fabric of uh, civic fabric of the society. And we need to rebuild the kinds of coalitions that existed under Tom Bradley when he was the mayor of the city, which galvanized historically marginalized groups together to find mm -hmm. commonality. I mean, to me, it's it's never too late, right? right? And we're in this this horrific time, unfortunately, where a lot of this hate is being brought to the forefront. But something you said, and I've talked about this before, um, was the notion of you know people thinking that the Jewish community doesn't fall into marginalized groups necessarily because they just think that they're white passing, but it is excluding all of those other people within the Jewish community that are people of color. So how do we 
start to educate people? And I know that's kind of a vague question, but how we start to educate people, I guess, I guess what I'm asking, are there any specific resources you would want to give my listeners that they could look into to learning more about the Jewish community and learning about why they need allies and why they should be considered a marginalized group as we're going in through these fights for social justice? I certainly think that we, you can engage with us, the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles. We have an entire team dedicated to this very question that you put out there. And I think uh, engaging with us, helping us create the roundtables and the discussion groups, um, that's what I think it's really important. If you're interested in education and whether that's through videos or through uh, articles, et cetera, there's a number of resources. And what I'm happy to do is to furnish a list of those to you um, that you can maybe tweet out or what have you to your list. Yeah. It's, just, it's too long of a list to go through, today. <laughs> but there are books, there are plenty of authors and there are plenty of people who are interested in this. I, I just think yeah. it's really important to discuss. And, and just to point it out that the vast majority of people in the world don't know who Jews are. They only know mm-hmm. it from our, the tropes of whether in the Bible or in, in the new Testament or in other um, you know, uh, Hollywood or what have you. So just to put it out there really quickly, Judaism is a religion. Judaism is a religion. And it's a religion that originated thousands and thousands of years ago that over time gave birth to other religions like Christianity and Islam, but has really influenced the direction of monotheism in the world. Um, Jew, the Jewish people are multi-ethnic, multinational, socioeconomically diverse, politically diverse. And um, what most non-Jews don't understand is that the divide between Judaism and the Jewish people does not exist. It is a non, I hate to use this term because it feels loaded, but I don't know how else to say it, non-binary um, uh, complex approach. Unlike other faiths where whether you believe in Jesus Christ or you believe in Muhammad or Allah, um, where your faith defines your identity, faith in God does not uh, define the identity of a Jewish person. It is part of who we are. But um, as I like to say, we can be completely ambivalent about God, but the Jewish people are never ambivalent about each other. Yeah. I love that distinction because I do think it's very important. And I think so many people don't know that. I think they only attribute being Jewish to a religion. And I've been very surprised in this past year, um, really speaking out about anti-Semitism and standing with the Jewish community to find that so many people did not know that. So thank you for spelling that out so beautifully because I do think it's very important for people to know and I think it's something we should continue to reiterate. One of the things I've also noticed as of late with everything that's been happening is that there are a lot of misconceptions and misinformation about the events of the Holocaust. And that has been surprising to me because I'm grateful I went to a a great public school where I learned about it. My mother was an educator. So nothing has ever surprised me. I've never thought that anything was false. But I'm curious why you think there are so many misconceptions about the events of the Holocaust and where that, I guess, lie could have been perpetuated and where it started. I think just to be absolutely clear, the Holocaust is an event in human history beginning in 19, it depends on how you count, 38 or 39, Mm -hmm. ending in the end of 1945, in which over 15 million people were murdered 
six million of which were Jews, two million of those being Jewish children. Um, if you understand those numbers, you would understand that one third of all the entire world Jewish community, we're very small people, one third mm -hmm. of our people were murdered. Half of all European Jews were murdered mm -hmm. in that very short time frame. And if you think about that time frame, 39 to 45, that is less than the term of one U.S. senator. I'm just giving you an example of how intense. 80,000 people a day, hundreds of thousands of people a week. I think the denialism comes from two places. One, I'll be not judgmental around, but something that we need to educate towards, and one I'll be very judgmental around. For the non-judgmental space, it is it makes your brain break when you think about Western society and its capacity for building mod the modern world that we are equally capable of destroying each other that quickly yeah. with that much hate. it makes your brain break it does it does and so when you think about to a nazi official who goes to work every day working on train schedules to keep them on time and a third of those trains are transporting political prisoners and jews to their deaths and then goes home and has dinner with his wife and children um, and maybe goes out to the club for a drink or something, it makes your brain hurt to think that that could be the same human being. So that, that part of us that just can't understand how a person could be that way leads to a place where you have to deny one side or the other. How can something like that actually exist? And so that 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 is one reason why Holocaust denial exists because just the idea of it makes your brain break. Um, the second one, which is much more judgmental and more important, is that people still harbor deeply anti-Semitic feelings and thoughts based mostly in ignorance and sometimes mm -hmm. out of outright hatred. And anything that goes against that narrative, they will um, they will discount, and that they will deny the Holocaust because they believe um, in the very conspiracies that the Holocaust permeated or promulgated. And so uh, because they are furthering that agenda the, and they continue to um, to want to further that agenda, then uh, denying the um, impropriety or the immorality of, of the Holocaust is a way of denying the Jewish claim on the world. Mm. That makes my brain break, <laughs> to be honest, because I don't know, I just can't I've never gotten to that mindset where I just think an entire group of people don't deserve to exist for any reason. Right. And I think it's just how I'm wired and how I was raised and what I choose to believe, but I can't for the life of me imagine allowing myself to get to that place of hate. And it makes me sad that that's where we're headed again. It feels with how this has been rising so quickly and seeing, I know people always say don't read the comments, but reading the comments, you see how hateful people are. And 
there really is no reason behind it. It's just there. And that's what I've been trying to figure out. Like, what is the reason that you have these feelings? What is the reason that you view this, these, this entire community this way? And that's the whole thing. It's the entire community. We can have individual problems, but again, them being Jewish should have nothing to be with it. If you have a problem with the person, that's one thing, but you're attributing it to them being Jewish. And that's, that's what I cannot wrap my mind around whatsoever. Yeah, I totally I agree with that. Um, I have a background in philosophy, so you'll have to forgive me. But um, Jung, the the existentialist French philosopher, if you remember him, had this concept called the collective unconscious. Mm -hmm. It's it's the collective instincts that we all have that float in the background of our decision making. It was the first attempt at talking about systemic bias, essentially, right? So um, anti-Semitism thousand years ago, 2000 years ago, permeated into the Western collective unconsciousness and it never got out. It's still there. Mm -hmm. I think in the same way, when we talk about bias, right, we, we think about um, historically anti-black racism from a systemic perspective, doesn't just look like keeping black people from eating in the same restaurant as you. It's the person who locks their doors when they see a black man walking down the street. Yeah. It's just all these yeah. cultural signifiers, right? Or you see someone in a hoodie and a backpack who's African-American or is um or is in a, a non-white passing individual and you immediately grab your keys in your pocket or do so something else, right? So yeah. you're you're so why is that? Is because there's something in the collective unconscious of those individuals that says that those cultural signifiers are threatening. And when someone hears a Jewish name or sees a Jew who is wearing a star or or something else, um, it was me it's meant to elicit the same it, it 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 elicits the same kind of thing. In fact, um, throughout history, Jews have had to wear um, conspicuous badges and hats. Um, we had to wear at one point uh, those cone hats that are associated when, if you know the iconography. iconography. Yeah, oh. no, I know what you're talking about. Oh, yeah, like witch hats. Like we had to wear those so that we mm. could scare people. Wow. We'd have to wear badges that say Jew with a yellow star. But even the yellow star is an old, I mean, it, it was a modern in, a modern reinvention that has existed for thousands of years so that everyone knew that someone was Jewish and they knew to stay away or they knew they were meant to trigger the fear in the collective unconscious. So that that is something that um, that we've been dealing with. I want to talk a little bit about um, anti-Semitic tropes and things that have been normalized in this country, because I think in conversations that I've had, a lot of people may not even realize that some things are anti-Semitic. And I do think it's it's not from a place of malice from a lot of people that I've talked to. It's just ignorance, right? So if you wouldn't mind sharing, what are some anti-Semitic tropes or mindsets that have been normalized that you would want people to recognize and call out when they see or hear them? Great. Uh, I appreciate that. I'll use some what in uh, academic circles are considered microaggressions, but mm -hmm. um, sometimes that term is a little triggering to folks, which is funny because the word microaggression itself becomes a microaggression. Okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, so uh, 
and some of them are positive. Let's just be clear. They're not all negative. So some positive ones is assuming that every Jewish person is an intellectual, smart person who's savvy and can get a deal done or, uh, you know, can um, can get the best bang for a buck. Right. That, That's right. like assuming all black people are athletic or can sing. <laughs> exactly. Right. 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 Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I know plenty of Jewish schlubs out there who can't get anything done. So it's uh, <laughs> it's it's just an anti-Semitic. It's an anti-Semitic microaggression. Right. Another one which is perfect, I think, which was deployed very heavily in the last several years, is that we need to be grateful for the country in which we live even more so than other minorities or other people, as if this country, the United States, isn't our country, right? So it's this idea yeah. that we are the other. That's, you know, um, or grateful for the state of Israel or what any particular leader has done for the state of Israel, right? Um, other ones which are pretty classic is that um, Jews are stingy with money or that we control things, uh, you know, quietly and secretly, right? Um, there is an anti-Semitic trope that Jews only care about Jews. And hmm. um, that's a really unfair one. Yeah. Um, especially given the history of anti-Semitism, yeah. where Jews had to care about Jews because nobody was going to care about us. Yeah. And using that self-defense against us as a weapon is just really um virulent, in my opinion. Yeah. Um I think also understanding that Jews are not athletic. Or that we don't stand up for, you know, we're not patriotic or what have you. Um, certainly that we're all white, that um, we're all liberal. Jews fought for the Confederacy. Jews fought for the Union. And, um, you know, I'm embarrassed by the Jews who fought for the Confederacy, but but it was a truth. It happened. Yeah. Um, and I also think, and this one's really important for the modern context, Holding any Jew responsible for the collective actions of the policies of the state of Israel yeah. is actually anti-Semitic. Asking a Jew to be responsible for a policy that you might or might not have thought ever about or only have seen on TikTok or what have you, holding any Jew collect that collective responsibility that's like holding a black person collectively responsible for whatever some other black person has done in the history of the right. world. It's right. it's anti-Semitic. It's it's hateful. It's um it's certainly ignorant. Yeah. And that one specifically is where I absolutely know, especially more on the liberal side, that there are a lot of misconceptions about the Jewish community because I think a lot of the liberal progressives, and I fall on the liberal progressive side for sure, but a lot of liberal progressives tend to go with who they think, without research or not, um, is part of the oppressed. And that's where, you know, the conflict with, with Palestine, when that is brought into America in conversations, there's not a lot of proper and correct information being shared. So then the perception of the Jewish community is negatively altered and people think that they don't need allies in a time like what we're going through now. So what is your hope as we're going through this this time in America right now for people to wake up to what is happening with anti-Semitism? What are you hoping, either on a political level, on a social level, but what are you hoping to happen and see change within the next year or so? Because you know, not being in the Jewish community, I will say I am glad that people are more aware 
but I am ashamed and, and saddened that it had to get to this point in order for people to be more aware. I guess the first thing I'll say is I hope you don't carry your shame heavy because uh, shame is such a terrible emotion and it includes all sorts of other negativities. And anyone who feels ashamed, we should address that shame as much as anything else. That's the rabbi in me coming out. So. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so listen, I am hopeful. I'm hopeful because I really believe the city reached a nader the, earlier this year with those tapes that came out. And, um, you know, it, with the whole thing that's happened on Instagram and the, the banners and the flyer, I, I really think that people are finally woken up to it. And and I was actually asked this question just yesterday or day before yesterday about whether or not we're giving this issue too much oxygen, that if you give it too much air, it makes the fire brighter. And my response to that reporter was simply was this, is that we tried depriving it of oxygen for 50 years and look where it got us. So you might as well come out swinging. Um, yeah. So I'm actually quite hopeful because uh, I see in little tiny pockets, people standing up and, and saying saying what they need to say. In fact, as you, you probably know, the White House hosted a roundtable on anti-Semitism yesterday. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's never happened before. Mm. <laughs> so uh, that's wow. really exciting. And I don't think, I do not think, well, I'll, I'll put, let me rephrase. I think it's unfair to, when this becomes an issue that rises to the center of public discourse, it's unfair in some ways um, to, uh, to accuse Jews or to accuse the public discourse of why are we talking about this? It's not that big of a deal, right? It's unfair in the same way that we would never want anti-Black racism to just fall by the wayside. Right. We want to keep bringing it to the center until we see more systemic changes, right? So it's time, right. it's time, it's getting bad enough, and that's a, that is a shame, but it's time for us to include Jews in what it means to advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Like that, that is what that means. Not because we're special, not because we, um, not because we feel that we need to be at the front of this conversation. We want to be part of this conversation. Yeah. I can't tell you. Yeah. Five years ago, when there was a major anti-Semitic attack here in Los Angeles, zero companies were willing to make statements in support of their Jewish personnel, but they were willing to make statements around AAPI hate and anti-Black racism and other things. And the number one comment we got in our town halls for, for the Federation, for our organization is, all of the minorities that we have keep trying to stand up for in a moment where we need them, they weren't there. Hmm. And I see that changing. And so I am hopeful because we're seeing it change with Jewish ERGs at corporations. We're seeing it changed with um, uh, non-Jewish young influencers like yourself who are talking about these issues. We feel less alone than I think we did a few years ago. And I think that itself is something to be really hopeful about. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad. Can you let everyone know where they can follow your organization and if they want to reach out to get more information, get involved, please let them know where we can find you. Sure. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Rabbi Noah for as long as, you know, the last months of Twitter. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen there. Uh, no one knows. <laughs> 
the name of the organization is the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles. The website very easily is jewishla.org. And uh, you can find us there. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you. Great. Rabbi Noah, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed talking with you. Me too. I really appreciate it. And uh, let's keep building these dialogues together. Yes. And to the listeners, thank you so much for continuing to support We Need to Talk. We have one more episode before our break. And we'll see you next week. We need to talk.